TED Audio Collective. I remember growing up in Spanish Harlem, going to the grocery store to buy something for my mom, and noticing that while I was paying with cash, other people were paying with some other form of currency. I later learned that currency was food stamps. Monopoly-looking money given by the government to those who are low-income to subsidize their basic needs. Fast forward to 2023. No more monopoly-looking money. Instead, a type of debit card, an EBT card, which stands for Electronic Benefit Transfer. It's a card used by those receiving grocery assistance where they can swipe like anyone else. Look at the power of technology. No more shame, because I've had friends who were on food stamps and they would hate going to the grocery store because everyone would know and see that they were on food stamps. And talk about efficiency too. With EBT cards, there's no need for multiple currencies. So what else might we do to rethink the way we support low-income folks altogether. I'm Madhu Bakanola. This is TED Business. Our speaker today is journalist Aaron Bastani. In this talk, Aaron pushes us to think about how to use technology in a way that can boost prosperity for everyone. After the talk, I'll share some tips about how organizations can establish innovative processes to support people at all income levels. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for this show comes from Economist Education. TED business listeners know we've discussed how businesses can drive solutions to social problems, which requires understanding and presenting your data effectively. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization 
Economist Education provides online executive education courses that last about two to six weeks. They're designed to empower business professionals to thrive. It covers everything from international relations, sustainability, critical thinking, and more. The courses feature senior editors from The Economist and invited experts who share their insights. Economist Education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to my exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash tedbusiness. Enter our promo code TEDBUSINESS at registration. This offer ends on March 31st. Don't wait for 15% off. Go now to education.economist.com slash TEDBUSINESS and use promo code TEDBUSINESS at registration. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm a writer, journalist, and a socialist. I also used to be broke. I did for a long time. Being a student, trying to make a name for myself in the media industry, starting a media organization, I had to move 15 times in 15 years because the rent in London just kept on going up. Now, this taught me an important lesson firsthand. Namely, you can want to study public policy or astrophysics, you can want to make a name for yourself, you can want to do an honest day's work. But all of that is extraordinarily difficult if your mind is thinking about those unpaid bills or knowing with the fullness of your heart that when you go to the cash point, it's going to respond insufficient funds. Now, while I was going through this, which I have to say happened for a little bit too long for my liking, I agreed with the ideas that I was reading from the liberal tradition, namely that individuals are uniquely placed to determine how their lives should unfold. Nobody else is. For everybody in this room, the best person to decide how your life should unfold is you. There's no higher authority, certainly not the state. But what was equally clear was that in the absence of access to certain resources, education, transport, healthcare and housing, that capacity for self-authorship is clearly limited for many people. We clearly live in a society where what we view as liberty, the pursuit of happiness, is limited for the majority of the global population. For many, it's illusory. It turns out that liberal ends of self-authorship, of determining how your life should unfold, require socialist means. The state must get involved. Now, We live in a world where capitalism has completely prevailed. It's one, you know, I was asked behind stage, oh, you, that smells great, what are you wearing? I said, Chanel Allure. And I'm the communist. <laughs> okay? So I'm under no illusions. It has completely prevailed. And the ideas driving it are those of economic liberalism. Economic liberalism says what I've just said to you. The individual is uniquely placed to determine how their life unfolds and that this should happen through the market. But there's a problem. While the market can be an extraordinary resource to get the things you need to get, to be who you want to be, for many, it's the opposite. It's a source of unfreedom. It's a constraint. It's more akin to a system of rationing than of uh, prosperity. We know this is the case for an increasing number of people because the numbers don't lie. In 2018, 40 million Americans use food stamps. 13 million more than in 2007, before the global financial crisis. Clearly, something is broken. You can disagree with me about everything else, 
But those are the facts. In the UK, a much smaller country, in 2016, 17 million people of working age had 100 pounds or less savings. They are one minor accident away from penury. 17 million people of working age. And on the thing that capitalism asks to be judged by, global growth, it says all this terrible stuff happens, inequality, and you know we can have poverty, in-work poverty, whatever. But we've still got growth. Well, actually, the story isn't so great there either. Despite the rise of China, global growth is in secular decline. So to be clear, the global economy is still growing, but at a smaller, slower rate, decade on decade. Twenty years ago, if you said the term "lost decade," You were talking about Japan. Today, it's an appropriate term for much of the global economy, from Britain to Italy, South Africa to Brazil, as one lost decade becomes two. And it gets worse. This economic malaise we've seen over the last 15 years is shortly to be joined by the climate crisis and then demographic aging, a crisis of elderly care. It turns out that the opening decades of the 21st century, as bad as they were for many, Are merely the leading edge of a hurricane. Now, despite everything I've just said to you, I'm an optimist. I believe that humans have the ingenuity to address all of these challenges and reach unprecedented prosperity and liberty for all. That can happen by employing the state and leveraging the technology revolution. I wrote a book about it. It's called fully automated luxury communism, the C word. Fully automated because we need an economic system which reduces the necessity of human labor in the production process. Luxury because we need to expand the sense of liberty and leisure time for all. A communism because what I believe is heading our way this century, maybe, could see the end of production for exchange and the necessity of humans to sell their labor for a wage. But in politics. Big ideas only get you so far. That's been a problem for the left historically. I don't know if you know. <laughs> and what matters in the here and now, in 2022, are concrete proposals. So, how do we leverage the technology revolution? How do we employ the state to address all the challenges I've just spoken about, which I'm pretty sure everybody in this room would acknowledge: rising inequality, the climate crisis, demographic aging. But for some, the answer. Is a universal basic income, a UBI. Now, despite being a millennial and still petrified whenever I look at my bank balance, I'm not a fan. And the reason is, an affordable UBI is ineffective, and an effective UBI is unaffordable. My proposal instead is universal basic services, UBS. These are services which are universally available, free at the point of consumption, and paid for through progressive. Taxation, a bit like the NHS in the UK. I propose four of these universal basic services: healthcare, housing, transport, and education. Why these four? Housing. Well, because you can't focus on long-term problem-solving or making something of yourself if you have to move every 12 months. Believe me, I know. Healthcare, because the basis of everything else is physical and mental well-being. Education, because you can't be of service to your community if you don't have skills, and we need to start acknowledging that an educated society is a public good. People training as dentists, as midwives, as engineers, 
hey, as accountants, we need those people. Society needs those people with those skills to not just thrive but to survive, and we all benefit from them having those skills. Transport because you can have the skills, you can have the housing, but location can remain a constraint on access to opportunity. So, you might agree with me so far. You might say, Aaron, I get it. Market failure exists. It's a thing. And yeah, okay, the state should intervene in some areas. Fine. But why universal? Surely we should focus scarce resources on those that need help the most. Well, it turns out two academics gave a pretty good answer to that 20 years ago. Surprise, surprise, they were Swedish, and they found that countries with universal welfare systems saw the lowest rates of hardship, the lowest rates of inequality, and universal welfare systems actually commanded the broadest possible consent. If you want to see the citation, it's、uh, Walter Corpian Yaquin Palme. Go on Google Scholar, find it. Now, how does that work? Why is that the case? Well, it turns out that、uh, universal welfare systems, because of the nature of, of how they work,、uh, have less bureaucracy, because they don't employ means testing. There's less stigma attached, so the people accessing the resources resources actually use them, as opposed to what we get with means testing, where you feel like you shouldn't be doing that. And importantly, importantly, they have the buy-in of that political. Class that is all important in democracies, the middle class. There's a reason why the NHS in Britain is still around after 80 years and is so loved. It's because everybody gets to use it. It's part of the national fabric. It's part of our shared social conversation and space. It's something that belongs to all of us in the UK, and we're very proud of it. So, if you want welfare services which address hardship, Reduce inequality are effective, efficient, and broadly liked. Make them universal. Okay, I like universal services, but how do we pay for this? In a word, tax. Hardly reinventing the wheel, I know. In the United States in the 1950s, the top rate of tax was 90 percent. Today, it's 37 percent. In the UK, for much of Margaret Thatcher's premiership, the top rate of tax was 60 percent. Today it's 45%. Dwight Eisenhower and the Iron Lady, hardly two radical Marxists. And then there's things like a financial transactions tax, or the fact, the outrage, in fact, that we tax work more than we tax wealth, which is astonishing. In the UK and the US, capital gains are taxed at a lower rate than incomes. How the hell does that work? Talk about a rigged system. Then there's the issue around the technology、uh, revolution. And this is a big reason why I、uh, I like universal basic services. If I'm right, then the trends of the 21st century are deflationary. Energy, information, labour are getting cheaper. They're deflationary, and they'll remain deflationary for a very long time. Hard to believe, I know, in 2022 when you're filling up at the tank, but renewables trends are clear, and that will be the case for a very long time. Now. Do we want those trends to underpin universal basic services or prop up shareholders, or create the basis for new monopolistic models? Finally, on the climate crisis, another reason for universal basic services: a UBI would be an extraordinary amount of money to spend, and yet I don't see quite what it would do in terms of transitioning our economies away from fossil fuels, which again, I'm sure everybody in this room acknowledges we have to do pretty damn quickly. 
Meanwhile, with universal basic services, we can put a post-carbon agenda at the heart of education, healthcare, transport, and housing, rapidly decarbonizing our economies. And look, to move away from fossil fuels, we need to do the one thing that market fundamentalists hate, and that's called planning. So, cast your minds to 2100 and a world after capitalism as we know it. You go to your job four hours a day. In an elderly care center, one of the few labor-intensive industries that's still around. Afterwards, you go for lunch, you see your friends, you talk about taking that holiday in some rewilded forest somewhere, go see some bison and some bears, and you talk about wanting to study for that third college degree. But this time in medicine, because you're working with older people and you're fascinated by the sphere, the area, the growth industry of radical life extension. And hey, your first two degrees didn't cost a thing, and that second one, East Asian literature, gave you a whole new perspective on life. You really love Japanese poetry after that. Pretty good, right? You get a notification as you leave that lunch. Your local healthcare clinic saying you need to go for a quick checkup. You go down there, you take a bus, free, electric, self-driving. The local bus co-op uses a powerful predictive algorithm to determine how much supplies needed at what time for. Optimal efficiency and effectiveness. Compare that to rush hour in LA or London. Big difference. I know which I prefer. You end up at the local health clinic. They say, "Look, it's time for a liquid biopsy. You missed your checkup last week. You go in. Stage zero cancer. No problem. Some pills will fix that." At every stage of this narrative, the healthcare, the transport, the college degrees, the elderly care, we've seen universal basic services in action. Universally available, free at the point of consumption, and paid for through progressive taxation. Now, this might sound utopian. Personally, I think it's technically easier to do than colonizing Mars, but our society somehow thinks differently. But it's not utopian. In fact, in many ways, this world resembles our own. There are still markets for many, many things. The state isn't involved in making chocolate bars or socks or silk ties. But it is the central player in these four things we all need for liberty: housing, education, healthcare, and transport. And to say it's no utopia means bad things still happen. Yes, there are fallings out. There's personal enmity. There are love affairs. You fall in and out of love. Often falling in love is worse than falling out of love. It's more dangerous. These things still happen, but they're better than homelessness, than being unable to pay for your insulin. Or failing to address the climate crisis as a species. It's time we lived up to those glorious words: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And recognize that for the majority of the global population, the pursuit of happiness is impossible. It's downright illusory unless they have access to universal basic services. This is the way. By which we guarantee liberty for all and address the great challenges of the 21st century: the climate crisis, inequality, demographic aging, whilst leveraging these remarkable technologies that the ingenuity of our species has created. I don't think there's another way of addressing those challenges. I think anybody who thinks otherwise is、uh, delusional, frankly. But all of that means we're going to have to do something which, for the political establishment and status quo thinking, has been anathema for decades, and that means returning the state, yes, the state, 
to the centre stage of our economic and social lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. I think we have um, a secret questioner somewhere in the form of Maya Bosnick, who is a public finance expert. She spoke recently at TED Women. Maya, what's your question? Yes, thank you very much. So my question is basically related to resistances. Uh, I work with uh, public services, and uh, I work towards making them more gender responsive, so I know a thing or two about resistances. So I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the biggest resistances and in which one or maybe some of these four that you are mentioning? Thank great, you. Great question. Thank you. For me, it's got to be housing, because particularly in the Anglo-American economies, we have a growth model built upon speculative investment in housing assets. The reality is, for the likes of the UK and the US, I don't know the Canadian property market, I think it's probably quite similar, um, We need to have something akin to what Japan has seen over the last 25 years, which is effectively flat house price increases. I, sorry, I should phrase that better. 0% growth in house prices. Um, so wages and catch up. Uh, I saw an amazing statistic, actually, the other day in the UK, which showed that a majority of homeowners in the UK are happy to have zero growth on house prices. And that makes sense, right? Why, why would you want your house to gain in value? All it means is you buy another house, which is, you know, has uh, relatively gone up as well. And I think people acknowledge that, look, this isn't working for people who rent, who don't own the assets, and I, I would rather keep that price flat and, 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 and you know, have more people included in our economy. But that's, I think, the big structural challenge is we would have to take on speculative investment in housing. Thank you, Maya. Erin, I was actually really, um, I'm really taken by this argument for UBS services, um, partly because just structurally some of those things naturally get organized better if there's only one of them, not a bunch in competition. You know, you compare U.S. healthcare capitalism with, with something like the NHS or other state things, which for all their faults seem to deliver equally good or better healthcare for like half the money. Transport, you can make the same argument. But, but have you costed out? Like it's still to roll out all those four, that's a massive yeah. investment. How have, have you costed it? I haven't costed it. The University College London has costed uh, universal basic services. And they had six. They included food, uh, which is pretty ambitious. In the US, private healthcare system, 16% of GDP is spent on healthcare. In the UK, it's 10%. And we have longer life expectancy, uh, fewer women dying in childbirth, lower infant mortality. So, so clearly something's going right. And you might say, well, the NHS is underfunded. Okay, bump up by 1% or 2%. And of course, we have universal coverage. So I think there's a strong argument there for public health care, personally, from an efficiency perspective. And I, and I would respond with this. Thank you. And I would respond with this in regards to elderly care. If you look at the crisis of, of demographic aging and elderly care that's coming down the line because of lower birth replacement rates of an aging population, and look, we want, I want one of these geniuses to come up with us living to 200. That'd be wonderful. But if that happens, we then create a crisis of elderly care And the reality is, it's not that we can't afford to do UBS, a UBS of elderly care if that happens. We can't afford not to do it. Because I then, I then return back to the NHS point about efficiency, mm. particularly in elderly care. If you don't have that as a UBS, you're in big trouble in my view. Aaron, thanks for an incredibly compelling contribution to the debate here. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Mm. 
Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring? Like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks, managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks, HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime, and sick days? All of that is so unnecessary. Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong, and who knows when their pay is wrong or right better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payday right for everyone with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/tedbusiness to get 15% off your first order when you use tedbusiness at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/tedbusiness and use the code tedbusiness at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Wow. What Aaron is proposing is amazing. And his socialist perspectives seem spot on. Just thinking of the year 2100 seems so surreal, but it's not that far away. Imagine yourself then. I know some of you might be long gone, but I'll still be here hosting TED Business. And I know some things will probably look a lot different than they do today. And wouldn't it be nice for everyone to have access to universal basic services to help us as we age? That might be a dream state, but I'm certain there are things we can do in our organizations now that might increase the likelihood of people living longer and healthier lives. I know that folks in my age bracket always forget, avoid, or just don't make time for our annual checkups. But people certainly schedule checkups for their kids. Why? because they're reminded to do so by their children's schools. What if in August or September, as people are gearing up to send their kids back to school, a company-wide communication gets sent out reminding people to schedule their annual checkups? 
Steps can even be taken to amplify awareness months throughout the year. This is often done for breast cancer in October, but did you know that February is Heart Health Month and September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month? Perhaps the more you know, the more you'll go to the doctor. What else can we think about in our organizations to make sure that people who need support are given it? Aaron talked about means testing, a phrase people might be unfamiliar with. On a basic level, means testing assesses a family's assets and income to figure out whether they're eligible for financial assistance. So how is this relevant to our organizations? Well, private colleges these days can cost over $50,000 per year, and means testing is used to see who is eligible for financial aid. Let's say you have an employee whose child gets that financial aid in their first year of college. The following year, that same employee gets a salary increase, a promotion, or a bonus for their stellar work. Do you know what might happen? That extra money in your employee's pocket could mean that their child is no longer eligible for financial aid in subsequent years of college. There are complex algorithms based on means testing that dictate who gets assistance, and employers need to be more cognizant about this. I'm not saying that people shouldn't get bonuses or raises, but can organizations be more creative in their support and programming? There are organizations that pay a portion of the education cost of employees' children or even subsidize continuing education for employees. Other approaches? Offering commuter benefits to help keep costs down for employees traveling to and from work every day. These are some tools that ensure that people who need support are given it. So in what ways is your company engaging in approaches like this? Something to think about. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Brittany Brown, edited by Alejandra Salazar, and fact-checked by Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, and Colin Helms. I'm Madhu Pakinola. Talk to you again next week.